Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer for the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the fantastic Charity Norman. Charity's own life story is as fascinating as the lives she writes about in her gripping novels, minus meth addiction and cult membership. Born in Uganda and raised in UK vicarages, Charity pursued travel and a successful legal career as a barrister before moving to New Zealand. She reflects on her road to rave reviews and bestseller status. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers, curious audiences and beautiful Marlborough. We're currently working on plans for this year's festival and we're excited to share more details with you very soon. For now, please enjoy Charity Norman speaking to Barbara DeLeo. And so the journey from Uganda to Hawke's Bay via the via, UK? Um, yes, my parents moved back to, uh, to England, um, uh, first of all to Yorkshire, North Yorkshire. And then, and how there, old were you when you? That you I was still a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, my siblings were, uh, were all went to school in Kenya, but um, I was the youngest. By I was the afterthought. Apparently, very much wanted. So, <laughs> so, so my mother insisted. She had two sets of twins, and she did nothing by halves. My mother, and then a gap, and then me. Um, so we moved to Yorkshire, where I sort of pranced about the North York Moors, making up really terrible poetry and thinking I was Emily Bronte, and then we moved from there to Birmingham. And, um, we, nice and that was where, yes, that was where I spent the rest of my childhood. Um, all the, uh, yeah, I, long story, I did a lot of traveling and sort of moving around. And eventually, one day, I found myself in the Sahara Desert, running from a broken love affair. And there I was in the middle of the Sahara, and I was in this lorry that drives from... Um, London to Victoria Falls, you know, and this Bedford, this 18-year-old Bedford army truck, and I'm on this, anyway, there was this mechanic, right, and he, and he was sort of, I can see where this is going, you can see where it's going, and you know, the boyfriend I left behind was called Charles, and you could take him to the races, but this, this, this mechanic, he was all sort of, he wore his overalls, he was covered in oil, and he had a tool belt, and, and he had this really gorgeous accent, and I, I remember asking him, where are you from? And he said, why, Pukarau. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I laughed. I was like, nowhere is called that. But reader, I married him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, much to my mother's horror. And um, years later, we didn't, we didn't, he didn't want to come back to New Zealand. You know, he'd sort of run from Waipukurau. Has anyone been to Waipukurau? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely spot, isn't it? Lovely spot, middle of nowhere, and he'd sort of run from there to, to travel and to do this, and after years of that, we settled down in Yorkshire, where for 15 years I was a, a barrister, travelling all over the northeast. and Tim was a house husband and looked after our three children. Um, and ju- when the youngest started at school, I decided I might be able to manage <laughs> to look after them. If I had had... This, and, and, and yeah, so we, we decided we'd have a role reversal and I would try to look after the children. He could go and this was in the work. UK? This was in mm-hmm. the UK, but because my earning capacity was sort of considerably greater than his and you don't want to be poor in the UK, 
um, we decide in any way, you know, we could come to New Zealand if you're not tied to the English legal system. Mm. Why wouldn't you come and come and live in this country, which is so so beautiful? The pound was strong in those days, and the dollar weak, and um, so we cut and pasted ourselves from North Yorkshire to um, Hawkes Bay, and it was almost literally Newcastle Crown Court one week, and Ola Ola Play Centre. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Ola Ola Play Centre. Wow! You have no idea what this. <laughs> So hence, we ended up in... Fabulous. Um, so in your session tomorrow, Tess is going to look um, a lot more in detail about those early years and how they might have influenced your writing. Um, but I'm really interested in your your large family. So the mm-hmm. seven children and your parents. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about what that is like, because I'm thinking about, about your books seem to have... A multitude of characters and mm. qu- and a lot of detail for each of those characters. Is that was that a reflection of of your life with your siblings and your parents? Um, my siblings are very eccentric, and so are my parents. I'm sure some of that fed into it. Um, definitely, although I although I never base any character on an individual who could sue me. <laughs> or who could definitely identify themselves. The interesting thing is people don't identify themselves. You know, if I do um, slightly base it on somebody, they don't spot themselves, but they think they're somebody else, normally somebody more flattering. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so my siblings are many and, many and varied. Um, only five of them are uh, really still with us. Um, and uh, so undoubtedly that February, it's really... It's, it's a more widespread than that, I think, the, the sort of harvesting of characterization. I'm sure you do the same. It's a, it's a kaleidoscopic thing, I think, um, from, from people that you meet all the time. And I, I, um, I used to sit on the bus when I was in, living in Birmingham, and I used to go to school on the bus, and I used to sit on the bus and listen to the people in the seat behind me <laughs> Uh, which is quite creepy looking back, but I was about eight or nine. And, and I spent ages listening to conversations day after day for years, and I began to realise that they never listened to each other. And it's, it struck me that they would have two completely separate conversations, like a pin to play. And, um, and, and once I realised that, I began to work out that I could listen to them. And then I would get the whole story. Mm. Whereas they never finished their stories off. You know I mean, I'd be sitting there and I'd want to turn around and say, no, 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 tell me about that. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, you know, I do have this sort of fascination with, with people's stories. And my parents probably bequeathed some of that to me. They, um, when we moved to Birmingham, had an open door policy. It was in an inner city parish. So every day we had many um, people with mental health problems knocking on the door, you know, several a day. And I was the last person left at home, the youngest child. And our, our duty, our, our, the intention was, and our duty was, and we were always expected to look after whoever came to the door, even if my father wasn't in. Um, we would make them sandwiches, we would signpost them to help and even drive them um, those to where they needed to go and listen to their stories. So that was very much the upbringing. My mm. sister once did that for a couple of young men, and she dropped them off under the spaghetti junction as per their request because they were destitute and were needing to hitch somewhere. And um, the police knocked on the door several hours later and said, 
was it our gin and whiskey that had been found up there? <laughs> These young men were found drunk under Spaghetti Junction. And my parents ran a self-help group for people with mental health problems, which I think probably assisted them as well. And I used to get off the bus and go there because there would be nobody at home and I was very young. And so I would go straight to this hall where they were holding their self-help group. And in those days, people didn't so much understand about... Um, confidentiality and so I used to sit in the corner ostensibly doing my homework uh, and actually drinking my milk and eating my McGritty's digestive biscuit and listening to this group and listening to my father saying so Bob how do you feel about your electroconvulsive therapy mm. um, so I think that fed in going back to your characterization I think that fed in more than the than the um, than sort of color of my family yeah right and so in that environment and with those sorts of people, do you, did, that, did that play a part in your decision to become a lawyer? The, you know, that sense of justice and justice, you know, fair and not fair, is that, is, was that part of mm. what made you want to go into the law? Yes, it was, there was. Um, you know, in Birmingham, there was tremendous inequality. And um, my father's parish, the two parishes that he was in, had a vast cross-section of society, um, you know, and to walk to the bus, you know, I'd be going through the tower blocks with, with the smells that they had and the sort of misery and the sort of, you know, you'd look up and there would be some sort of thin child looking down at you and, 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 we, and we used to you know, do, um, for various reasons, spend a lot of time there. So I think I was aware of that. Um, and of the, of the unfairness of the way their lives are going to, be, going to be lived and the way the law is going to treat them and so on mm. going down the track. So certainly there was, there was uh, some of that, undoubtedly. And I was quite interested in law. My father was a barrister before going to the church and um, I wanted to make money and I liked the sound of my own voice. <laughs> yeah. You must have had a lot of compassion with... Um, the sorts of people you were dealing with? Because I know you were in, it was family law, was that? Was it? Family and, and criminal. And criminal. Mm. So, you know, you must have quite a compassionate heart, I guess, from your, from your family too. Mm. Has that, I'm thinking particularly of some of the antagonists in your books, where it would be very easy for you to paint them perhaps in a more, you know, two-dimensional kind of a way, but they're very sympathetic, your antagonists. Do you, good. Do, is, that, is that deliberate? Yeah, I, I think it is deliberate, although I, th I think it's intuitive too. My experience, and I don't know if anybody else would agree, but my experience is that um, people aren't two-dimensional. And I've never met anybody who believed themselves, or very rarely, I once or twice at, at my work, but I've rarely met anybody who believes themselves to be evil or even to be selfish <clears throat> you know mm. normally people think they're entirely justified in what they're doing and if you spend long enough hearing them and listening to them and working out where they've come from they are justified at least at that moment in that time at that second you can see, you can see how that came about mm. so often so I, I i mean i don't i'm not consciously trying to be sort of didactic in these books, but um, I think that that does that does come out. I was listening to um, 
Fiona Kidman earlier talking about um, um, this mortal boy and that really resonating that, that concept that it's one mistake uh. after a lifetime and, and one mistake can lead to a ruined life. Uh. And so those antagonists have very complex backstories. I'm thinking, um, let's uh, maybe if we start with See You in September, mm. is that with a 2017 book? Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about, there's, there's a huge cast of characters, can you mm. tell us a little bit of, about where the idea, I know everybody says where do your ideas come from, yeah. but, but, but the bigger ideas mm. of all those characters and all their intertwined lives, how, how do you start creating that world? Yeah, that was a difficult book to write, and I didn't expect it to be, because I thought, well, it's a book like a cult. Mm. I mean, that's great, isn't mm. it? I mean, we all like a cult, don't we? Mm. And um, so I thought it would be a laugh. And uh, actually, it nearly killed me. That Well, I mean, not quite. I did have breast cancer while I was writing it, so perhaps it did nearly kill me. Um, uh, so I, 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 the original idea came because I was... Um, I was finishing the previous book, which is in New Zealand and Australia, it's called The Secret Life of Luke Livingston, and it's a book about a, a, a transgender woman in, who is transitioning, and I was finishing it off, and my family, every time I tried to work, they interrupted me, and so I went to a monastery called Southern Star Abbey, if anybody's been there, in, in, um, in Hawke's Bay, and they, you can stay there for free, you sort of give whatever you want to give, and they've got a guest room, so I was working on this book. If they'd known the subject matter, maybe they wouldn't have been so welcoming. But anyway, they were very welcoming. And every few hours, the bell would toll. They kept the offices. Mm. And I, I don't really have a, I don't have a faith, but I would go, to, I would go, I would keep the offices with them. And you would, except in the middle of the night, I certainly didn't. And you'd hear this tolling of the bell, and everything was terribly calm, and they produced meals, and there was a routine, and these rhythms, and this serenity, and... At the end of the week, I had to leave. It was time for me to go, and I'm sure they were glad to see the back of me. But as I drove away, just, just, just for a moment there, I thought, I don't really want yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. I'd been, I, and I'd, I'd been just very slightly, I had sort of inculcated myself, I think. And so it occurred to me then, what if they weren't so benign? Mm. You know, what if they did want to keep me here? And so I began to think about cultic practices, and I did lots of research and decided to set it at Lake Tarawira. Mm. But as for the characters, I worked out that the sort of size of the group I wanted it, of course, they don't think of themselves as a cult, they never do, mm. um, this community, um, I worked out a couple of hundred would be, uh, would be sustainable. And having researched various organizations, obviously looked at Gloriavelle and other places, there's plenty out there, believe mm. me. There's about 400 people on the world today who believe themselves to be Jesus Christ. Wow, that's quite a few. That is a lot of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I would like to put them all in a room together. <laughs> See, let, let them fight it out. Um, so that meant I had to have character. You know, you've got to give, mm. you've got to give a, this is balance because you, you can't, unless you're writing 90 million books like J.K. Rowling in one series, you can't, you can't, give every person a character. Mm, mm. So you've got to have a sort of chorus in the background, but they've got to be quite real. Mm. And then you've, but you've got to have enough um, characters that you get to know to make it so that it's not, um, it's not sort of ridiculous. Mm. Because this is a community, and they live together, and they do everything together. So that was, that was complex. 
making each individual, with, and each individual had to have their own motivation for remaining within that community. And some had arrived there, and some had been born there. And um, uh, so I'd, I'd done the research and you know, knew that this was the kind of makeup that you might expect to see within a community. Mm. So after that, it was simply a question of, of making them into people. Mm. So it's Gethsemane is the, is the, is Gethsemane. the, set, is the setting for whether the, the group live. Um, I actually felt like I wanted to live in Gethsemane. It would be lovely, wouldn't it? it you know, the, it was, yeah, beautiful. And that's what I loved about it was that it, I could see how um, Cassie, who's the protagonist, how how she could be, mm. become under that spell. Mm. I wonder mm. if you would mind reading us the very first few pages. It's the second one down there, I think. Yeah. Um, so perhaps just tell us a little bit about whose point of view we're in here. Have to remember. So yes, this is um, from the point of view of a woman called Diana who is um, a middle-aged woman living in England. Diana is the mother of Cassie, and Cassie is a 21-year-old backpacker in New Zealand who one day, whilst hitchhiking, um, in fact, suspecting herself to be pregnant, um, she's a law student, she has an argument with her boyfriend, Hamish, who's not unlike Charles that I mentioned some time ago, and... Um, Storms, well, she storms off, and at that moment, a van drives up, and it's full of lovely, 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 lovely people, and they invite her home with them for the night, and she doesn't come home. After five years, she's still there. So the prologue is from the point of view of her mother, Diana, who at the, uh, we don't know what's happened, because this is a prologue, but who has come to Lake Tarawira for the first time, uh, and is living there, uh, is visiting there. Diana, 2016. It doesn't look like a scene of death. It looks like paradise. Wooden cabins dream in autumn sunshine. Goats graze by the lapping waters of a lake. Even the hills seem placid, luxuriating in their pelt of native bush. She can't hear a man-made sound. Only the distant chuckle of a stream, the fluting and whistling of birds. The valley is submerged in a blue haze of peace. Paradise. Or not. Gaudy plastic stirs among the flax bushes. Police tape, a jaunty, jarring souvenir of tragedy. There are other signs too if you look for them. Empty buildings, marker pegs on the beach. The authorities set up camp here, she knows, and stayed for weeks. Squads of divers plunged into the lake. Dog handlers combed the shadowy folds of bush. They even used a drone to take aerial footage. She imagines them tramping around in heavy-booted incongruity, coaxing and bullying statements from people who desperately want to forget. Until a few years ago, Diana had never heard of Justin Calvin. She'd never dreamed that events in a valley on the other side of the world could decimate her family. She and Mike were pretty bog-standard people in those days. They'd been married longer than the national average, got through his army years and come out the other side not rolling in money, not struggling, a red brick and stucco semi in South London. Most of their worry, their focus and hope were centred on their two daughters. Nobody had gone off the rails, not unless you counted Tara's suspension for smoking behind the gym. No sign. No sign at all of what was to come. There's a new sound among the cabins. It's strong and clear and utterly unexpected. Someone is playing a piano. 
rippling complex triplets with a haunting melody woven through them. A pair of fantails swoop and dive around Diana's head as though riding on the currents of the song. In this strange and beautiful place, after so much loss, the music seems to speak of appalling sadness. It makes her want to cry. She has a photo of Cassie taken as they waved her off from Heathrow. One final picture, one final smile. A butterfly in a glass case. Have fun, they were yelling in the moment it was taken. Watch out for man-eating kiwis. Diana has used it as her desktop background ever since. She greets her elder daughter in the morning and last thing at night and a hundred times a day. The girl smiling out of the screen is dear and familiar and, well, she's just Cassie. Voluptuous, long-legged, quick to blush. A thick plait hangs over one shoulder, an in-flight bag over the other. Her nose isn't quite straight, never has been since it was broken by a rogue hockey ball, but there's something arresting about the dark blue eyes and flipped-up lashes. She's always had that wistful expression, a downturn at the corners of her eyes as though she knows something that others don't. My God, did we really make jokes about killer kiwis? If I'd seen what was around the corner, I'd have begged her not to get on that plane. Across the lake, the volcano is a sleeping giant. The piece has a hypnotic quality. It stills your soul. It slows your breath. No wonder the media has become obsessed with this glorious wilderness. No wonder the police struggled to understand what happened here. No wonder the nation is still searching its soul, wondering who to blame. She's often wondered the same thing herself. There have been moments over the years when she's found she has stopped, just stopped, dead. She was meant to be walking to work or feeding the cat. Instead, she is far away, arms limp by her sides, gazing at the past. It's like watching a milk bottle falling off a table. It rolls and falls in nightmarish slow motion, and yet it seems unstoppable. There was a time when the family was whole, and a time when it hit the ground, milk and shattered glass spraying across the tiles. In between is the moment when she should have caught it. Thank you. So the setting of Lake Tarawera is, is superb. You, you just do it so beautifully. Um, that, that book set in New Zealand, Second Chances, it's got another name in Northern Hemisphere, doesn't Second it? Chances is called After the Fall in some other After places. the Fall is set in Hawke's Bay. Um, mm. And your latest book, Secret of Strangers, set in London Cafe. Mm. Who do you imagine reading your your books? And, and you know, are they New Zealanders? Are they a, just sort of a generic group of people? Are they people from the UK? Who, who do you imagine is reading your books? What an interesting question. Um, uh, I mean, I just hope lots and lots and lots of people, really. Um, I mean, they have been sort of translated into various languages. And, um, you, of course, you don't always know what, what, what that will be like, you know, how that will be received culturally. I, I, I know, because statistically, you know, I have to accept that across the board, women buy more books than men. Um, and from the demographic of the, you know, the book clubs and the, mm. the people that contact me, um, it is uh, largely women, not entirely. There are plenty of men who contact me as well. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, I, tr I, I don't think of myself as a writer for women, not 
I don't want to make the mistake Jeanette Winterson did and appear to be pejorative (laughs) about writing women's fiction because then I would be cancelled. Yes, that's right. um, But I I prefer to think that it is for everybody of almost any age. I mean, from um, people have contacted me who are very young, sort of 12-year-olds who have read this. these books. So any age, any gender, any place. And I'm interested in the genre. I mean, we sort of seem to get tied up in, you know, whether things are crime or thriller or yours are even domestic fiction. I'm not quite sure what domestic fiction is, but mm. do you, um, does that, how do you, how do you describe your what story? I do. And are they mm. all, are they all different? So we can't mm. describe them all together. I, that's part of the problem is they are all different. And I think, I think it is difficult for, um, for my publishers to, to you know, to you know, for the publicist to come up with a pigeonhole, although they, they say the writer is a brand, don't mm-hmm. know, don't whether mm-hmm. it's a charity norm, and the writer is a brand, but they are all different. And I, I the last couple have been involved in the NIO Marsh Awards, yeah. so, but they're quite flexible. You know, they'll say, well, this is a mystery, so so that can go in. Mm. Um, you know, my agent the other day wrote and said, oh. This is yet another, I've just sent my latest book to her, and she said, this is yet another wonderful, how did she put it? Um, a, um, a, a, a drama, a drama with a mystery at its heart. That's it. And I couldn't help thinking, yeah, I'm so, so it's going to sound as I'm on, on my soapbox, but sometimes I think that when a man writes a book about a family drama, mm-hmm. It's, it's a Trojan horse into which he has brought powerful and universal, mm. mm-hmm. um, important themes. And when a woman writes a book about a frigging cult, it's a family drama. It's a family with, drama. With, it's domestic fiction. With heart. Mm. It's a mystery with heart. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and domestic fiction. So tricky, tricky. Mm. Uh, yeah. I'm interested um, because last night the panel was fabulous. It was anybody, but quite a few of you would have been. Um, but I was interested in one of your comments, and I, it, maybe it was just tongue-in-cheek and throwaway, but you referred to the other authors as proper authors. <laughs> <laughs> what did you mean by that? What did you mean by that, Charity? Um, well, there were some, you know, very august people There were august there. people. I mean... But why uh, are you not a proper author? Well, it was false modesty on my part, that's the absence. <laughs> it wasn't anything to do with, you know, your books are commercial. Mm. Do, do, you see a, do you see a divide in... Do I see a divide? Do you see the I divide? Mean, and, and am I suffering from imposter syndrome? Well, not necessarily imposter syndrome, but that, you know, uh, mm. it, I guess I'm just wondering mm. if... In New Zealand, there seems to be quite a lean towards the literary. Yeah. You know, most of the awards, apart from perhaps Naya Marsh, but a lot of the awards, you'd never, you, you hardly ever see, um, you don't see a lot of commercial fiction mm. in there. And I'm just wondering, yeah. what you, what's your opinion about no, that? No, it's, it's a really good question. And, and it wasn't entirely false. I, mean, I suppose there is mm. always, I, th- I think, I suspect all of us have a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, mm. I, you know, I think that's, and I think it's pretty ubiquitous, um, and there were a lot of august people there. But yes, I mean, I think there is, um, there is this divide, I think possibly more so in New Zealand. Mm. Um, I mean, th- you've, you've been, you've been um, Richard and Judy's book club, yes. BBC Two, a number of Several times. times, yes. But New Zealand, I don't, you know, you've been nominated for Naya Marsh. Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, these books are fabulous. Why, why do you... Why do you think 
I, I, Why is there that I'm divide? not sure I'm the right person to ask, answer that question. Um, yes, I, it's probably not, you know, not, not a great idea for me to answer that question. Um, because I do have, you know, yes, sometimes I do have views about that. And, um, and I, you know, it is sometimes those books which, are, um, which get a lot of airtime in New Zealand aren't books which are being read as widely as my books. And that's, right. uh, that's, that, that's for sure yep. globally. Some of them, of course, are massively successful. Right. Um, and I, I think that the line, and it's my feeling that the line between commercial and literary fiction is pretty blurred. In, I, aim for, I try to aim for a sort of bullseye right in the middle. Now, this is hardly... Um, Mills and Boone, you know, there's a book about a book about a woman transitioning. I mean, I've got a book mm -hmm. about um, a man who's, uh, who's hit his wife, and as she's going down, she's killed, and it's about what happens next. You know, these, these, these are actually important themes. Mm, of course they are. And so I, 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 I sometimes wonder whether commercial success is, becomes a bit of a sort of dirty concept. Mm. Word, but I don't know. I mean, as I said, I shouldn't be answering that question. <laughs> ask, ask some of the real authors. <laughs> um, so your latest book, uh, not the latest that you've been writing, because you have just finished one, have you? Mm, I've got to deliver the, um, the latest draft by kind of next week, right. <laughs> or the week after that, or something awful. <laughs> so Secrets of Strangers came out just, what, just before lockdown. Did it came out days before lockdown in New Zealand, and so it came out, and Whitcalls had piles of them, and they were in the airport, and then we got locked down, and I, I, I remember looking through the window like this, Whitcalls came out the same problem, and seeing these piles of books gathering dust, and this sort of oh, awful no. sense that by the time, and they, they would even be in the book of the month category at the airport. And there's nobody in the airport. And there's my, you know, and there's, there's me sort of rather pathetically putting up my, my photo of myself with my books in the airport and, 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 and no bugger is flying anywhere. So that was a um, teeny bit stressful. And it came out in, um, in England. It was a Radio 2 book club choice, which gave it some oxygen. Mm. But it came out there um, while well, they were being locked down. So I had this bizarre experience of talking to Joe Wiley at Radio 2 on the phone at six in the morning in Wellington and we had come out of lockdown we were living normally mm. and they weren't and she treated me like the messiah she said what's it like what's it like and then she talked to me during the during the um sort of ad break you know the music or whatever it is they do on Radio 2 and afterwards I heard her saying to the listeners I've just been talking to Charity and she says to tell you, it will end. It is coming. It is coming. <laughs> I could be you one of the 400 the Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose the really spooky thing is that it was a, the story is its own lockdown, isn't it? It's set in a London cafe. Mm. Maybe you can tell us the a premise. A lockdown for a lockdown. A lockdown for a lockdown. So the, um, so the premise of this one is, it was inspired by, but that's probably a matter for tomorrow, what it was inspired. It was inspired, I'll tell you very briefly, yeah. by the Napier Siege, 2009. So which you lived I was, close by. I lived close by. I was obliquely involved in that. But um, 
But the, the, story, the premise is there's a cafe in London, Tuckbox Cafe, South London, Balham. I'm sure lots of people know Balham, really close to the tube station there. And uh, it's a normal morning. Various people are going to get their coffee. They're commuting about 7.30. And a gunman comes in and there's an altercation and he shoots the owner with a shotgun, 12 bush side by side shotgun. And there's pandemonium. And uh, a number of people, a small number of people, are left trapped in the cafe. And the rest of the action is about what happens over the, the next 12 hours in the cafe. Although, um, so it is a lockdown for a lockdown. Um, although there's a lot of, uh, what we're actually hearing is the story of, of the gunman and some of the others involved in the cafe. There's a Rwandan nurse who's escaped the genocide. And um, there's a a criminal barrister on her way to St Albans Crown Court and there's a homeless man, um, Neil, who's just there to use the loo and get a cup of tea because somebody's put two dollars in his two pounds in his cup. Um, in fact my father had found some homeless people sleeping on the steps of the church and had them living in his house, which kind of inspired me to put Neil in right. at the time. So that's the premise. Maybe would you, would you read us um, a little piece? Perhaps Fine. just at the inciting. There you go. Right, so where we are here is, yes, we, we're slightly, um, we started slightly. So this is from the point of view of Abby, who is, who is our slightly spiky criminal barrister. She's not at all like my sister. It's <laughs> 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 my story and I'm sticking to it. No, honestly, Abby is really sane compared to my sister. Anyway, <laughs> so she's on the phone. Abby never stops working. She works and works and works, and, uh, she, but she's also going through IVF. Um, and perhaps you, might, you can decide for yourself when you buy the book. Perhaps the work is, to a degree, is, um, is sort of covering up for that. So she's gone into the cafe really early in the morning. She's going to grab her coffee. She doesn't have time to think. And while she's there, she's, her husband phones her to talk about their latest um, pregnancy test. Um, and while she's talking to him, she hears an altercation going on. Someone screaming obscenities. Who the hell will be starting a riot in a cafe at this time of the morning? Ah, it's the curly-headed guy. He's back. She presses her palm over her free ear. Sorry, can't hear you. Some idiot's yelling. I've got to grab my coffee and run. We'll try again if it's negative, won't we? Abby? It's just sound. She stopped listening. For the first time in days, in months, in years, she isn't even remotely thinking about either childlessness or work. Fuck, she says, he's got a... The world explodes. A single report, a shockwave so shattering that her eardrums seem to burst. She's hurling herself to the ground. As both hands jerk to cover her ears, her phone spins from her grasp. Pandemonium. The cafe is erupting like a fairground ride gone wrong. High-pitched screeches, someone screaming, it's a bomb. People are crawling under tables while others claw their way through a panicking bottleneck at the door. A little boy crouches on the floor beside a woman in a beret. The child's arms are curled over his head. A man in his suit actually trips over the poor kid, falls against a chair, scrambles up and legs it. Sophia, the barista, has grabbed a couple of schoolgirls by their clothes and is dragging them towards the courtyard at the back, yelling for others to follow. This way, come on, come on. The second shot is overwhelming. For a full minute, Abby can hear nothing except ocean waves. The air is opaque with gunpowder and fear. 
She meets all kinds of secondhand violence in her work, endless lurid photographs of wounds, bloodstains, and bodies in mortuaries. She's heard witnesses describing attacks, pathologists describing fatal trauma, but it's all two steps removed. By the time it arrives in court, there's a pattern to the violence. There's an order. It's neatly packaged. The real thing isn't ordered at all. She knows this now. It's barbaric and ugly and confused and unimaginably loud. Her first instinct is to get out of Tuckbox, her second to tell Charlie what's happening. That's when she misses her phone. Every contact, photo, message and diary entry is stored in that little object. It's a handle on life. While sane people are running for their lives, she's wasting precious seconds in turning back and bending to snatch it up from the floor. She never sees who hurtles into her. Someone heavy, someone running full tilt. The impact knocks her off balance as she stoops, sending her sprawling, her forehead knocking against the radiator with a sickening thud. The pain is immediate. Her vision swims, her knees buckle. She's conscious, but for a moment or two, her mind seems blank. It's all over. Tuckbox seems to have been abandoned. The radio is playing a jolly Christmas song, but there are no other human voices. By contrast with the Marie Celeste eeriness inside the cafe, a human herd is stampeding out in the street. Pounding feet, shouts, leave this area now, get back, move, car horns, a roaring engine, a motorbike mounts the pavement as it U-turns. Painfully, dizzily, she uses the radiator to support herself as she stands up. It's okay, it's okay. The gunman will be long gone by now. She'll leave her contact details with the police, catch the next train, get to court, take in a couple of ibuprofen and begin the Bradshaw trial. As she turns to leave, she realises her mistake. The gunman is still here. Got to go and buy it. (laughs) Find out what happens. So both those two books we've talked about are very complex and you've got multiple points of view. Are Mm. you an absolute plotter or do you just sort of, can you just fly into the mist and see what happens? Well, my very first book, Free and Grace, I did the the latter. And um, I just moved to New Zealand and I was a useless mother and couldn't bake and do anything. And so I, I, I started writing and I used to wander along the riverbank and think about my characters and this book grew organically and it took years and you know, I rewrote it mm. behind every sentence there were 50 ghosts and uh, that wasn't sustainable commercially and also my agent is a dragon and she insists <laughs> that um, she, wants, she wants a synopsis and she, uh, she and her editor will pour over it and they'll right. say well, you know, have you really thought about this and you know, what, it, what, what, is this character really going to work so I tend to have, it's not a, it's not a scene by scene um, plot. I know some authors do mm. that. But I tend to have a story arc and a couple of pages. And um, there's a lot of movement possible within that. For example, the ending of The Secrets of Strangers. I don't know if anybody's read it, but the, the ending is not what I plotted originally. If you could see my notes, my next question is the ending. Mm. It's not the ending I was imagining either. Mm. How, so how does that feel when, when the powers that be say to you, this is the way things need to be? Oh, it, it wasn't. It was my decision. So um, I, had, I had planned a different ending. The gunman, we become very fond of the gunman. Very fond. Very fond. You know, we're, he's, he's the young man making the one mistake. And I've got sons. And um, I've known a lot of young men in trouble. And we're very fond of him. I'm very fond of him. 
and he's got no way out really mm. he's he's he has killed somebody and uh, and he he's terrified of prison and he's had a pretty awful life and he's lost everything in ways that you will read about and there's nowhere for him to go and originally I intended it to end in um, in one way um, I at the time I was also living with a young person who was making sustained attempts mm. to take their own life. Mm-hmm. So I was having a lot of, and, and I worked for Lifeline as a right. volunteer in the past as well. So, you know, I'd had a lot of conversations with, with people who could not see a way out. Mm. And when I got towards the end of the book, I, having lived with this young man for two years, you know, got to know him, and I realised the ending that the way I thought he would behave wasn't what was going to happen and it wouldn't be right. There wasn't really the way out for him. So I didn't know what to do. So I went back because I thought, oh, nobody wants that. I went back and rewrote the whole thing. I did the next draft you know, mm. twice more. And every time I'd come to the end and I'd be like a horse getting to the jump and then I, and I wouldn't. Uh, and then the last time I wrote the ending and it, I think it was right, actually. And the ending of not that we're going to say what the endings of either book is, but the endings for the ending for see you in September mm. also is interesting in that the antagonist we become very fond of him in a way mm. too. Um, was was mm. that ending really clear to you? He's more he's really complex. I, mm. he's, he's the cult leader, and that's really fascinating. You know, does a cult leader know they're a cult leader? Mm. Do they know? Do they know they're a narcissistic sociopath? What do they think? And, and, and I really got in his head terrifyingly easily. And um, I did know that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I hadn't worked out the minutiae mm-hmm. of, like, who was going to, you know, who was, who was going to buy the farm. But, um, yeah. but uh, I, I, I was pretty sure that this community was going to end um, in, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. The ex- exactly how they were going to do it, I wasn't entirely sure. Right. I did an awful lot of research, which I'm quite sure is going to get me arrested. <laughs> if somebody goes back through your, your Google search. Yeah, I was waiting for the SES to come swinging yeah. through the window. I, I, was, I, was, I was actually quite hopeful they might come swinging through the window. <laughs> in their masks and webbing. <laughs> um, Dorothy Parker once said that she... Uh, she what, what, what did she say? She said... Uh, she didn't like writing, but she liked having written. Where do you sit on that on that spectrum? Ooh. Do you love everything about writing? Do you no. F- <laughs> um, yes, I see what you mean. Mm. Yes, but she loved having written. Is this? I do love. Well, I, I do love having written. Although I'm, it's so critical. It's like looking at your photos of yourself, isn't mm. it? You say, oh, I wish I'd done that. Wish I'd done the other. And I read it again. Oh no, too many adjectives. Um, the writing process is at times profoundly joyous. You know, I'm sure you experience the same. I'm sure many of you have. You know, there are those times where you, you have a thought and, and it's, you're able to express it in a way that you think has worked. And you think that, you know, the other night I was talking about the, the hand reaching out. And you think that maybe your hand has reached out, maybe successfully, even if only to yourself. Mm. And there is that sort of satisfaction of that. And it certainly beats 
York Crown Court at nine o'clock in front of his <laughs> honour Judge Rottweiler. You know, that's for sure. The, um, and the commute to the, uh, to the table is, is short and the, the dress is altogether different. Um, so yes, but, you know, there are those grinding days where you're just pulling one word after another, day after mm. day, I've got this imposter syndrome, oh no, they're going to realise I'm hopeless this time, my agent's going to hate it. And, um, and uh, I, I have so much if still to do. And if you look ahead, the first 20,000 words seems to go quite quickly. And I'm, I think other authors you know, often find this. Somewhere around the 40,000, 50,000, there's this treacle that you start to wade through that makes you slow down and slow and slow. And, and the problem is you're afraid that the pace of your book is also slowing. So I, but, but what I do is I just, I just keep going because you've got to keep going. Mm. There's always a deadline. Mm. Um, and, um, you've got think, one next well, week. I've got one next week <laughs> and you think, well, I'll, you know, I'll fix it up. I'll fix it up later. Yes, the re- I quite enjoy the rewrite and the edit. Once it's right. done, you've, you've painted your picture or you've sketched it, you've got everything there and you've put the colours on and now is a lovely time when you get to make it three-dimensional mm. and, and add all that colour and life and light and maybe even take this one out, put one here. And I quite like that because you can see the whole picture. Mm. So, Jen, it's a bit stressful um, because you're worried about how it's going to do, but the process itself is, is kind of fun. Mm. Well, we did promise that we'd have some time for questions, and we've, we've um, only got 10 minutes left. Does anybody have a question? Sorry, I've got to just do this for the light. Who has a question? Any questions at all for Charity? This one here? Charity, thank you. How do you come to the title of your books, or does your publisher have a lot of say in it? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I, I have a title. I normally have a working title, and sometimes the working title has just been the title. There's been no problem. But um, quite often, once it comes, you know, once it's coming sort of towards publication, either I or the, in the case of some of my books, I've said, oh, we can't call it this anymore for this reason or that. Or um, the, one or the other of the publisher's publishing team, pub, the publicity team will say, oh, it's not right for our market. Can you come up with something else? And I, I've got better at this. So in the early days when I was a bit sort of um, pathetically grateful to be pub- I mean, I'm still grateful, but I was pathetically grateful to be published at all and I would sort of let them do anything and I have to say I don't like the name Second Chances I did not choose and I think it's really pretty weak and um, the British um, called it um, After the Fall which is a much better title and the um, Europeans called it different things again Why would they change? Why? why, why? Uh, the, the, in, the UK um, publishers said it's just, not, it's just not right, we're not calling it Second Chance not right for our market but that's mm. difficult because then, and the same thing happened with Luke Livingston, Secret Life of Luke Livingston. I had called The New Woman. And the, um, the Australians, who, who also distribute here, which is why I'm technically not a New Zealand author, um, they said, Secret of Strangers won't grab our readers. We need something with more intrigue. And so I gave them a list, and they chose out of that The Secret Life of Luke Livingston. The... You, the, the, um, the UK mob said, no, no, absolutely not, we're not having that, um, we're going with the secrets of strangers, it's just, it doesn't meet our market. Since then, um, 
my agent and I got together and we've insisted there must be one title, at least for, if it's in English. I mean, if it's in another language, that's, that's different. But if it's in English, it must have only one title. And they're making much more of an effort. Now, uh, uh, putting that more neutrally, I seem to have had a lot more input into the title. <laughs> I think there's another question up Thank you. Yes. Um, Charity, I've read all your books and absolutely love them. How long have I had to wait for these? It's a very good question. <laughs> First of all, you're my favourite person. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, literally. Um, it's, uh, it should be out early-ish next year. So it's, um, I'm doing structural editing now. So it's, um, it, it's the next round after that will be copy editing and the first proofs will sort of be got ready and they're starting to work on the cover. And as they tell me that they're aiming for early-ish next year, that tends to mean March. I'm not quite sure. It's something to do with some magic ancient magic from the dawn of time to do with March being good for probably Mother's Day. <laughs> and can we have a little hint? Yes, can we have a hint year. about what, it's, what, what the story is? A uh, woman who's lived in London for 25 years comes back to Hawke's Bay, to the Rohini, Mount, the Rohini Ranges, to look after her father who has Alzheimer's. Mm. And... Um, as his mind begins to melt, she discovers that he's not at all who she thought. There is a sort of cold case mystery, a hiker who disappeared 25 years earlier, but this, isn't your, this is not your classic murdered girl book uh, right. plot. Sounds yeah. fantastic. March, it, March it is. To find out. <laughs> Some more questions for Charity? I want to hear. Yes. Yes, I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I thought you presented the adoption process, both the natural parents and the adoptive parents, very well. And I wonder how much, when you had experienced adoption, how much research you had to do for that? That's a good question. Um, I, I, as a barrister, I did quite a lot of adoption work. Um, both um, to a degree in the criminal courts, but particularly in the family courts. So I had spent a lot of time with people who were, whose children were being taken away from them. And um, often young men, going back to the young man theme, um, you know, you can lock a young man up for 10 years and he'll sort of, might be quite uh, stalwart, but take his child off him and he, and he will collapse. So I'd, so I'd done that and I'd also worked with adoptive parents um, but my sister adopted two children, so I was very aware of, of, of what that was like and the, the sort of the setbacks and the terror of that, the concept that you, you get ready and then you might, might not be going to happen. Um, and um, I've got other family members who had adopted children also, so a mixture of the two. And I did also do quite a bit of research. That was going to be called um, The Freeing originally, because in, in English law, we used to have a, a freeing hearing where a child is freed and it's sort of cut free from the parents. It sounds barbaric mm -hmm. now, but we would. We'd do a freeing and the concept was that the child would be free before it would be placed, the, he or she would be placed for adoption. And then you didn't get this awful situation where the birth family um, 
you know, might, might, that might still derail the process, um, if that's the right thing to happen. Um, but while I was writing the book, freeing hearings were abolished and changed for something else. So um, it got changed to a placement hearing, and I thought the placing didn't sound quite so good. So that was one title that got changed very late on. Anyone else? Over here. Yes, yes, yes. I think Paul Cleave might have um, more recently. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well. Um, it's the opposite way for me. I mean, I think, I think recently, frankly, New Zealand is the buzz place to live. You know, I mean, everybody wishes they were here. So I'm, I'm hoping for a bit of a, um, a bit of a, a, a what, what would be a wishful thinking, you know, bounce for my latest book. But um, I wasn't originally going to set my second book in New Zealand, and um, it was my agent who said, you know, you could. There's, there's a lot of. Um, sort of wanderlust and people wanting to, you know, read about it. If you, if you can make it engaging enough, you know, that will be, that won't give it a go. And so, I, to my surprise, I found that um, those books have done really well overseas. I, I do think that New Zealand is viewed in a really positive way, generally, and um, uh, there's an escapism, I think. So whether it will carry on working for me, I'm not sure. And certainly my, uh, my most recent biggest success was Secrets of Strangers, which is set in London, and it's very London. So, you know, it may be that that, um, that, that can't go on forever, but it, has, it certainly has been... Um, I think it's actually... It, I think it has appealed to the escapist in these slightly difficult days that we're living in for the last 20 years. More questions? I've got one for you, Charity. Um, what do you read, and has that changed since you've been a writer? Hmm. Um, I read. It just it's just what I pick up, really. You know, quite. It's I, it's very it's quite eclectic. I read a lot of non-fiction, and I I find fiction. You're right, because since writing myself, I've, beca- I've found it much more difficult to read fiction. Mm. Is it just me? No. Um, it's not just me, is it? Um, I, I want, I mean, I, I, sometimes I'll pick up fiction, it's absolute joy, and I'm in awe of that person, and then I feel really jealous and really depressed, but that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of good depression. Um, uh, but, but you see, you see the smoke and mirrors. You yeah. know how they did it. And also... I get really cross when I see the same adjective used twice mm. in two pages. You know, really, like, I, you know, really, I say, did you not have an editor? And also, did you not proofread this? And, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice that in her, I think, fifth of the Harry Potter series, Umbridge smiled sweetly, you know, every page. And, <laughs> and I began to notice, and I don't think I would have done, but I think you become like a proofreader because you're so, you, like, you spend so much of your life proofreading. Mm. So to a degree, it's become a busman's holiday. But um, so I read anything. I mean, I, I you know hugely enjoyed um, uh, a, a book recently about the um, the Grand Armées, you know, leaving Moscow mm. and sort of this incredible sense of the of the privations and you know, another about um, 
by Will Fiennes about uh, walking across Antarctica. And, um, and then I read contemporary novelists as well. Mm. Um, just read a Kelly Rimmer, for example. Oh, yeah. um, so all, all kinds of things. But I, as somebody else was saying the other night, over the last 18 months, there's been an awful lot of this going on, mm. you know? Mm. I read, you know, I just read The Guardian. <laughs> 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 to my sister's disgust. Um, and, you know, and other... It's, it's not quite doom-scrolling, but there's been... Well, it's, it's not just the last 16 months. I mean, I... Googling Donald Trump yeah. is strangely yeah. addictive, yeah. isn't it? And that's it's a, a real... It used to be. Well, I, I almost miss the bloke. It's... <laughs> it's um, I mean, I don't, but... It, that you know, that's a really deep hole to fall into, is. and I I think I need to address this. Mm. Mm. I, can I can I have a, give you a quick suggestion? Also, yes. a plug um, for your audiobooks. I I love audiobooks, and mm. I find it you know I, I feel that my inner editor disappears because I can't see the words. Yes. But your audiobook for See You in September is fabulous. If anybody hasn't read the book yet and would like to, the uh, the narrator is Scottish uh, and just does New Zealand accents so beautifully, but just the, because there are so many characters, you just get taken away. It's, yeah, audiobooks that's, are that's fabulous. And it's a, it, yeah, it's a right, thank fine. you for that. Thank you for that plug. And they, 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 I'm told that this, the audio, the actress who um, narrated The Secrets of Strangers did a marvellous job. It's really hard to listen to your own books. Mm. But, um, yes, but I agree with you about audiobooks. I've got... Um, I, I always have one on the go. Mm. I've got Vintner's Luck on the go. Oh, fantastic. Um, I've always got at least you know, one or two on the go in different places. And, and you're right, it does help to turn off that inner editor. Mm. Mm. Well, I can't quite believe that it's 6.31 and I know that other people have other places to go. Charity, I feel like I've got two hours' worth of questions <laughs> to ask you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your answers today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Charity is going to be um, out there for signing if anybody would like to um, take their book or the Paper Plus have them for um, purchase. I believe there are still some tickets left for your session with Tessa tomorrow if anybody would like to come along to that. But Tessa's going to sort of do a bit more um, digging into your your life as a lawyer and your, um, your life growing up. Um, so thank you so much and thank you for being part of the Marble Book Festival. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Charity Norman speaking to Barbara DeLeo at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz And if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening.